Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. We all live in a watershed, and ultimately it comes down to clean water. Water is the resource. Everything else, yes, is important, but without water, we have nothing. All of a sudden, right before their eyes, many little tiny watersheds appear, and they can see little watersheds connecting to bigger watersheds, and all of a sudden that interconnectedness pops right into their minds. So it's place-based and it's applicable, and, and as you're suggesting, students take that ownership of it, and now they can act on these plans or run with these plans and see and connect with their friends and who makes decisions and how does this stuff work and what are we talking about here? Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Watching and learning and understanding how the different activities that we do on the land or how our humanness and our need to interact with communities and, and do what we do on the land and its impact on the water is a really, really important and powerful lens to frame an education curriculum around. I mean, it's it's the it's what we should be, in my view, looking at fundamentally as one of the keystone elements of our system. It's a grueling and dangerous journey. Frankly, this sockeye salmon is unlikely to make it. She began life in the Adams River three years ago with about 900 siblings. That number is now down to around nine, a figure that is likely to fall as the salmon head upstream the Fraser River. The run of the sockeyes is a natural phenomenon in David Ramsey's home watershed in the Pacific Northwest. David co-founded the nonprofit BC Tomorrow, and he joined Ian to discuss the particulars of watershed education, the importance of learning through a watershed lens, and the many cross-curricular opportunities in watershed-based learning. So before we get into the why and how of watershed education, let's begin with the what. In fact, let's start with the definition of a watershed. Yeah, so watersheds are like basins and they, as water flows, uh, it connects through a basin. And I usually use with students similar to how water would flow in a sink, like a, a bathroom sink. Right. It flows towards some central, either a river or a water body or a lake. And ultimately, they everything drains into the ocean. And what's your home watershed? We would be in the Fraser watershed, so that, that's the big one. It's almost the size of, it goes for us here in what watershed I am from, is extend all the way up into the Rockies and then down, <clears throat> drain down through the Fraser River into Vancouver. And then my small sub-watershed that I live in is the Shuswap. Very nice. And that's an important part, I think, of watersheds seeing is this idea that smaller sub-watersheds ultimately lead into these major arteries that dump out into the ocean. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and that's, and that's something where many 
people don't necessarily see that everybody is connected to a watershed and it can be as small as a little tiny stream on a beach that would be one and extend as large as half the province and even cross international borders so they're there's they're scaled in many ways I always like to joke that the watershed that I live in, the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed, has blue whales in it, even though I'm approximately 900 kilometers from the closest blue whale. Uh, it's a big watershed. That's a big watershed. And it drains through the St. Lawrence River then? Is that the exit point then? Yeah, so the town that I'm in has a small creek called Butler Creek, which drains directly into Lake Ontario. And then not too far east is the mouth of the St. Lawrence River right around Kingston and Gananoque in eastern Ontario. And then that water drains down the St. Lawrence River, opens up into the Atlantic Ocean where some of those deep diving whales like sperm whales can be found. And then, of course, the largest animal to ever live, mm -hmm. the blue whale. There's also, fun yeah. fact, and here we go, I already yeah. getting us into a side tangent, but there is an outlier population of beluga whales also about 900 kilometers from where I'm based, in and around the junction of the St. Lawrence River and the Saguenay River in a small community known as Tadoussac, Quebec. Hmm. So, fun fact, the southernmost belugas. And the conditions that would lead to that isolated little population would be unique to that little area. So it would be really interesting to see how, whatever it is, the conditions that allowed for that population to flourish in just that small area. Yeah. What's unique about your watershed? We are home to the uh, largest proportion, percentage of sockeye salmon. So our watershed has, uh, we're connected to the Fraser through the Thompson River and annually a large migration of salmon migrate up and spawn in the Adams River. And so it's a, it's a wonder of nature. And we can every year go and watch and see how the salmon that have been out in the Pacific for their life cycle and somehow make it back through all the trials and tribulations and there the cycle goes again. The trials, tribulations, and tributaries. Yes, right. Oh, boy. And, yet they, and they find their way back. Yeah, I mean, fish migration, migration in general of anything is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, we have freshwater eels which embark on this remarkable migration, but I don't know. The sockeye salmon is something, it's the stuff of dreams. And I think the fact that they're bright red as they come into the spawning season adds to the mystique of them. And yeah, I, it's something I would love to see someday, but I'm uh, pretty far away in a very mm -hmm. different watershed. Mm -hmm. And culturally, there's there's such a significant keystone species and, and they hold so much um, significance in the, in the life cycle of not only the uh, species that just feed off them as they migrate, but the local populations historically, the, the nutrients, and we can find the DNA, as the birds would feed on the carcasses, the, they would fly inland and the DNA ends up getting interconnected into some of the local vegetation and the trees. And, and it's just absolutely remarkable how interconnected that keystone species is to the culture of this area. Yeah, that's a story I would like to see a lot more of uh, maybe someday. Soon, hopefully. Hopefully. If you had to encapsulate a definition of watershed education, what would it be? I know that's a bit of a hard question, but um, give it your best shot. Watershed, I would say, I guess what I really re what resonates me with watersheds and how it works is it's, it's messy and it's interconnected and it's real. 
because in 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 my view in watershed education what you have is because of the way water flows uh what we do upstream can impact downstream so we have we have the, all the sciences and so we could look at the chemistry and the biology and the and the earth science and then you have the politics because who makes decisions regarding something that's trans jurisdictional and we have to collaborate and we talk about that interconnectedness and so many things depend on on uh, on how water flows and so i guess watershed education is real and it has that holistic perspective that is where we live that's where our planet is it's not just a defined answer it's the subtleties of of nature and its tremendously varied interactions and humans and how we interact with them. And because of that sort of universality to it and holistic nature of it, it is very cross-disciplinary in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how education is, is moving in a sense where we're looking at, you know, we're not in the social studies block, therefore we're only studying socials. And <laughs> now we're in science block and we're only studying science and now we're in math, but watershed education has, the social studies, politics, economics, and, and human interactions with the science, the biology, the earth science, and the chemistry, and the financial and the economy and human part, all holistically connected. And, and watersheds are a really perfect way to look at a, a holistic education, you know, as, as the parts connect. It is indeed. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. After surviving two years of ocean life among killer whales, a new sort of obstacle awaits our sockeye, the Hell's Gate fish ladder on the Fraser River. She tries to find an eddy where the countercurrent is weaker. Moving on to the why of watershed education, and we talk a lot about the why on this show, many educators, especially outdoor and environmental educators, are embracing place-based learning. Mm -hmm. And watershed ed, of course, is a subset of that. So why specifically is learning through a watershed lens so valuable? I think because of the holistic, messy nature, it's uh, that, that, that to me is... Um, is why and, and because also we all live in a watershed and ultimately it comes down to clean water. Water is the resource. Everything else, yes, is important, but without water, we have nothing. And right. so watching and learning and understanding how the different activities that we do on the land or how our humanness and our need to interact with communities and, and do what we do on the land and its impact on the water is a really, really important and powerful lens to frame an education curriculum around. I mean, it's it's the it's what we should be, in my view, looking at fundamentally as one of the keystone elements of our system. Do you ever get students to look at maps based on watersheds as opposed to the somewhat arbitrary political boundaries? I mean, I say that recognizing that some political boundaries are defined by watersheds, but mm -hmm. 
when you overlay the two maps, the political boundaries in many ways are quite arbitrary. Have you ever done the watershed map sort of activity? Yeah, yeah. So what we use is our Shuswap watershed and, and we can look at it <clears throat> and then there's a, a divide. And so you can compare and just to the south of us in a, in a town, a well-known town called Kelowna, many of my students and people around don't know it's a completely separate watershed and the whole system functions completely differently. So ours is like a great big giant flowing river just flows, the whole watershed system kind of flows gently and slowly in a general way to the south of us. It's much more like a basin, and the the way the water moves is much much slower. And so the the, the considerations um, regarding uh, how you know whatever whatever our human impacts are going to be in the decision making process are completely different between the two watersheds. And so there's a, a distinction that and it and the, and the divide is really subtle. It's uh, you know I'll say to students often is you, you remember you go across this little tiny bridge and, and they would never see a big great big mountain range or anything. It's just a little tiny rise. Yeah. And all of a sudden the water is changing from one direction to the other, and a completely different way to manage and, and look at the two systems. So yes, we do use maps. Students when they're using the maps, they find their favorite campsites or their their favorite fishing spots or the beaches and, and they looked and they and they completely lose track of you know sort of political boundaries and all of a sudden it's just water flowing and you ask any canoe tripper and they look at life through a watershed lens they know the canoe routes they know the rivers they know what's connected whether they cross a provincial or a state or an, an international boundary is less important i mean maybe important for passports but that aside mm -hmm. when you're out in the back country you measure not by these invisible lines, you measure by where the water is flowing and how it's connected. Yeah, and that would define where your communities might be, where you camp or you stop, or you're gonna, the flowing of the water is gonna have an impact on whatever your plans are. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's great. When it comes to understanding climate change, it would seem that watershed ed could be a really useful tool, a really useful lens. Can you sort of unpack that for us? Well, as, as the climate changes and water has that tremendous impact, it's got that push on it. And as climate changes and what we've just experienced out here in the West is mm. the, the talk of extreme events and, and whether they're coming more frequently or not can be up for debate. But no matter what, the, when the water comes down, it's got this hydraulic push to it and it's going to have an impact. And so if we are expecting these then how do we prepare for changes in the water cycle? So what does that mean that we're getting more snow and it's coming down faster or we're getting less and it's, there's not enough of it? The way it moves around the surface is, has a tremendous impact on our activities. So whether it be for the habitat for the salmon or for the, or for the recreational activities, people's boating or, or beach access, hiking, road infrastructure, we, we have to look at how the water moves and what its potential impacts. And as that's changing, what could be the implications for preparing for the future? Because when it comes down, in a, when a lot of it comes down, as we, we just experienced here in the West Coast, it closed our, one of our main arteries for, gosh, I want to say three or four months and wiped out several bridges and towns, local towns have been seriously impacted and are going to be impacted for years. And and so we, we really have to pay attention to the water. With a warming climate, there's more of it, and it's heavy. And it seems like this is a really 
useful entry point into systems thinking? I mean, with the example you just gave, it's an unfortunate look at the system and what breaks down in the system as a result of climate change. But it is a learning opportunity to look at, well, how does this affect our infrastructure? How does this affect our road infrastructure? How does this affect our commerce and delivery and our supply chains? Mm -hmm. It is such a cause and effect link and it all comes down to what the water is doing, or you could almost say mm-hmm. what the water is saying. No, that's a good one. You know what? I'm going to use that because that speaking in stories um, yeah. is a powerful learning uh, teaching opportunity. Yes, and and so and we have to pay attention. And what, you know, looking at just if we're if we're taking a forest out, for example, or you know, there's somebody's that's happening. Well, the implications of that are all of a sudden all those checks on the water as it hits the ground or it's protected from hitting the ground or as it collects it's going to move at, at a different speed now and there's not as much holding it back and it's going to accumulate quicker and downstream from there is there critical infrastructure in the way what are the potentials for like you were saying the supply chains maybe some food security you know clean water just for drinking habitats etc and the system like you're like you were suggesting it's a it's a really powerful way to do a deep investigation into systems thinking and linkages. And there's certainly a lot of momentum now on Mm -hmm. the importance of systems thinking. I'm just seeing that pop up everywhere in educational Mm -hmm. circles. Mm -hmm. And, and, and for a lot of people, it's, it's, you know, what parts of the system and you could look at a, you know, I've used the example as a, uh, as a team of, of some kind. And if part of the system is taken out, so a player on the team is taken out, everybody's role changes. Right. And how does that role change? Well, maybe someone has to take up the slack here or do something out of their comfort zone there. And there's going to be an impact or a family. Imagine a family, another interesting system. Somebody grows up, they go through adolescence, they move out. All of a sudden, the impacts on family life are are changing. And so um, with our interactions by watersheds, there's all these interactions that are connected in a system and when we do something the system responds to try to get back to that balance point again and what do those responses look like exactly hey it's ian i'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books teaching kids about climate change and teaching teens about climate change each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready to use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. As if the rapids along the Fraser weren't challenging enough, now there are bears to contend with. Many salmon are eaten, but our sockeye has made it and is onward to the Thompson River. Shifting to the how, mm. we've already talked a bit about maps and their utility in watershed ed. Are there any activities that you've done that have just been really high impact? Oh gosh, yes, some of them. And watershed ed is so powerful because students just naturally identify it, identify with it. So Mm. some of my most powerful ones have come through some of Green Teacher's amazing activities and and two stand out that I've built an awful lot and have had an impact on my professional development career, I would say. One of them is the the biosphere challenge. Yeah. So the biosphere, my, you know, three or four students work together in a group and they have to create the situation in this, in this little aquarium uh, that's going to 
allow these spiders to survive for seven generations. And the kids go out and typically they have some mud, a few little vegetation, a few parts of vegetation and a huge amount of water. And they come back in, they cover it up with the clear wrap, seal it up, put the thermometer in there. And the next day they can't see in really because there's so much condensation. Their yeah. poor spider is just like over here. And then we <laughs> then there's the, the poor set of spiders going to have a tough time there. It's like getting out yeah. of an airplane. Waterlogged spider. <laughs> and so then, then that provides that context for learning. And so now we can start to provide that, that framework to, to do some real intense learning. And so version two of their, their, their biospheres is, is much more interconnected. And, and then they're getting a little closer. And by the time they get to version three, they've really done a thorough investigation of what is all the parts that I have to include to allow this generational succession of spiders. And bringing in a guest speaker at that point then really takes the learning to a whole new level for the students. So, so I would say the interconnectedness and how systems work and, and uh, the cycles, it, the biosphere would be a highlight. And then the second one is branching out. And branching out is just one of those simple, quick, relatively quick hitters that you can build so much. And, and so what the model is with that one is students in groups of two or three, they build their own watershed using, using rocks in a lasagna pan. And they put the rocks mm-hmm. in there and they cover them up. And then they put this, you know, soak, soak the, um, uh, a big piece of paper. So it kind of contours with the rocks and they cover it with clear wrap again. And they draw a picture and they have highs, like the, the big rocks I always say are mountains and the little rocks are going to, or whatever it makes valleys. And you've got natural lakes form. You've got natural streams forms. You've got this contoured landscape in a lasagna tray. And then they spray with blue water from above the rain and all of a sudden right before their eyes many little tiny watersheds appear and they can see little watersheds connecting to bigger watersheds and all of a sudden that interconnectedness pops right into their minds and if the biosphere is is the first activity and the watershed called branching out is the second one that interconnectedness just it takes root and they understand it and everything just flourishes from there yeah. Are these both activities you do mainly with high school students? Um, yes. You know, my, the second half of my teaching career has been primarily focused in high school, but they're, what I find is I can make the best traction with is they're both really simple. So you can, I scale them up in a, in a sense that the level of sophistication with these students is, can be scaled up relatively quickly because they're older, but they're both, both of these are, are such simple visual models that can be used with students they can be adapted to meet the needs of almost i would say probably from grade four or five those students are like sponges all the way up to grade 12 and probably even university i bet because they're so those are they're so powerful you can make so many connections with them yeah with younger students have you ever done a stream study i haven't personally but um like a longitudinal study where they take uh, a series of measurements like year after year or over a length of time is that uh, that kind of thing like I've done with older students where we sample water and we look at water quality and we do an invertebrate study we do the chemistry we do some of the dissolved solids and then we do an overall assessment of stream health right. using using you know the all those different variables and I found that another amazing well once you've done these other things and then you start to take the you know the biosphere challenge the the watershed and then you start going into like stream analysis they they really understand it it's a it's a really good way to go 
Yeah, like stream study is just so valuable at so many mm -hmm. age groups. I mean, with really younger students, you're not going to be measuring pH levels, mm -hmm. but you're looking at biodiversity. Even if you don't necessarily use the term biodiversity, you're still looking at what is there and you know how to tell one from the other and it's great to get into dichotomous keys and mm -hmm. all that good stuff which you can do on laminated paper yeah so many opportunities yep. at all ages and then you can layer it so what's really interesting and what we do in education a lot is we do something with students at a younger age and then we come back to that same topic a little later in their school career and mm -hmm. they've they've got more understanding and they're 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 capable of more and and all of a sudden those things that they visited, like those topics they looked at when they were younger, now open up with you know much greater degree of sophistication. Yeah, so I guess this is a call to action or the subtext here is mm. do stream studies at all ages yes. and just yeah. change the focus as you go. Yes. Well and, and yeah, that's right. There you go. You know, obviously young students are gonna understand say water chemistry is that those are water atoms and they can have things with them. And a little bit older, those water atoms are also joined by other things that are dissolved in there. And some of those things that are dissolved in there are good and necessary. Others can accumulate and cause problems. And then by the time they get to grade 12 or 11 and 12, we're talking about equilibrium and concentrations and saturation, but there's a progression there. Yeah. Oh, I'm just excited about going out and doing a stream <laughs> study. See, it's a little bit cold today, but I still... <laughs> might get the old dip net out <laughs> yeah that's fantastic they're, they're really good yeah and the, and the living the living components the living elements and how the interactions there and and you know looking at the the invertebrate species as a as an indicator of, of overall health and you don't have to get in the chemistry what are, how do these animals like it how are they doing yeah. why don't why don't we see very many of them here oh what could be going wrong let's see go upstream and see what could be happening there yeah, that's one of my favorite activities is doing the, the biodiversity survey to, you know, look at, okay, what do we have for mayfly larva, stonefly larva, dragonfly, damselfly, nymphs, et cetera, and just coming up with an equation essentially for ranking the health of mm -hmm. the stream. And then, as you say, asking why, if it is at a particular level, particularly a lower level than desired, what is the reason behind that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's fantastic. And, and framing curriculum around that, because look at what you have. And when you ask those questions that were We've got science, we've got numbers, we've got decision-making. So if there is that upstream, downstream connection, who's making the decisions? Are there other communities that are dependent on this? What are the potential implications? Who's going to pay the taxes? And how do we keep the water clean? And on and on and on it goes. And that holistic examination is, you know, the pipe is messy. And we're not meant to just sit in little silos and look at one thing in one block. And individually, we need to look at more the interactions that happen. Messy is good because yeah, messy right. is life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. 
all of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. There are some close calls along the Thompson, but the journey is almost complete as our Sokai reaches the Adams River, where she will spawn. Before we finish up, Green Teacher and BC Tomorrow are partnering on a virtual field trip program later this year, and central to that is BC Tomorrow's simulator, which is extremely <laughs> cool. So tell us mm -hmm. a bit about the simulator. Yes, very exciting virtual field trip series. And the simulator itself is actually born of my, or one of the root activities was my interactions with Green Teacher. And um, it came from watershed education and what it's, it's originated in Alberta tomorrow. And, and they've been working at it and they've made a, what they've made is a, is an interactive simulator. And so we've benefited from Alberta tomorrow's experiences, their creativity, their, their ability to, to work through some difficult challenges. And so what they've done or what we've done together is built a simulator that shows like a time machine, how the watersheds have looked uh, historically. So we can go back in time and see changes on the landscape for a hundred years. So when your grandchildren or when your grandparents and great grandparents were, were around, you can see what the landscape looked like, how it changed. And while you're watching it change, you're looking at how things on the land that we've done have had an impact on a series of socioeconomic and environmental indicators. So what you would see is different colors on the landscape changing over time. So you'd see the agriculture change, human settlement change, and as those big variables change, how has the natural landscape and water quality, GDP, water consumption, how have some of those big indicators changed as a result of what we've done on the land? So go back in time, watch for 100 years and see how it's changed, and then go into the future and look at what the trends might look like when our students are older. So we're talking about their lifetime. And so we do the research and become experts using the time machine, see some of these cause and effect interactions and then after we've done this investigation we can pull back the simulator to today and students get a chance to design a future for the landscape as they want to see it and they get to apply their learning and create a future that balances out some of their concerns with these different indicators so that's the basic nature of the tool what I love about that is the fact that you look at future possibilities, some of which are desirable and some of which are undesirable. It's very place specific, but that you're getting students to act on it and to design mm -hmm. it. And I think I'm very much generalizing here, but I don't see written into curriculum a lot about future casting and looking into the future that we want to aspire towards. I mean, certainly it is there in pockets and there are champion teachers who do that, but a missing part of history is the history that hasn't happened yet. And especially mm. with an age of eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, whatever term you want to use, we need to know what we are aiming towards and what is possible. 
And I think that's just one of the great strengths of the simulator is students get to take some agency over where things are going. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll, here's a, a, a classic. I got lots of students in my career over the years. Oh, I'm not going to learn. I mean, what's the point of this? I'm never going to use this. <laughs> of course. Okay. Yeah. And you know, the, the classic stereotype student and I, I'll say, well, okay, maybe, but look at this. We're talking about your future here and these interactions are happening and apply that. What, you know, what, do you, what do you want that future to look like? And all of a sudden what you see is these, you know, I guess you want to call them education resistors potentially, or, you know, why am I ever going to use this stuff? Applying their learning, their whatever skills they're understanding, they, everybody has a connection to the land. So all of a sudden they're looking at places that they have a connection with and trying to figure out a way to have that however they want for their future, their families, their next generations. And, and that turns it from, I don't need this stuff to, this is what we're talking about in my landscape. So it's place-based and it's applicable. And, and as you were suggesting, students take that ownership of it and now they can act on these plans or run with these plans and see and connect with their friends and who makes decisions and how does this stuff work and what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's so inspiring and inspiring while being grounded in reality. This isn't pie in the sky stuff. This is, Mm -hmm. and yes, there is complexity and any complexity scientist would tell you we can't entirely predict the future, but there are a lot of indicators that can give us a basic idea of where we might be going. And it at least sets the groundwork for that important planning. Yeah. And and you're right, exactly. And you're mentioning about the anxiety and the, and the, you know, eco and climate change and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, what, what do we need to do? Well, we don't, like you're saying, we don't necessarily know, but when we act and we we're actually doing something. So what I've been saying is when we take learning at school and apply it to some of these big things, all of a sudden the anxiety starts to come down because, Oh, now we actually see hmm, that we're, we're doing something we're acting and we're looking at possibilities. And like you say, we can't predict the future, but there's certainly a lot of those trends and patterns that we can identify with. And all of a sudden, I think when students are applying their learning at school, we've got an element of hope. We've turned that table a bit to something that, oh, this is what it looks like or could look like. And what things and what steps can I take to address some of these concerns? Yeah. Realistic hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, take it out of the you know, we know people are going to frame it however they want. Okay, well, let's, you know, if we want to talk about sustainability, see for yourself. Let's see what we have here. What does it look like? And on a big scale, you can see, so we have the way our simulator works, you can, you can look at the whole province or you can zoom right down into your, to your individual watershed. And, and I find that's quite effective is if you've got these provincial trends and, and that's a, a good way. Okay, so that's big. And oh, how are we going to deal with that big area? Well, no, let's get down to just our local area because there's the global thinking, but we need to act. And this is where the, you know, on the ground strategies align extremely well with the simulator. With the simulator, you see the big sort of holistic view. But if we say, for example, improve natural landscapes, that has an impact on our water quality, that has an impact on our habitats, that also has an impact on our GDP potentially. And so by doing these small on the ground strategies locally, we're going to generally have an impact on the the bigger picture for sure well we will include in the show notes a link Mm -hmm. to the simulator on the bc tomorrow website and for anyone listening we 
invite educators, especially in BC and Ontario in Canada, mm -hmm. to contact us about the virtual field trip series. It's going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to uh, connecting with everybody and, and learning. And, and what I, I guess a final thought is I, I'm really inspired by how much people are doing. And, you know, the collaboration leads to inspiration. Uh, so we can inspire each other to, to work together and share strategies. And uh, I think it's a real, if we could look at things as we're in a challenging time, but that challenging time uh, is an opportunity as well, as you mentioned. So I'm looking forward to working together. Yeah, opportunity is one of my favorite words, and that's a great way to end off. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me, Dave. Thanks, Ian. It was a great time. Thanks so much. It's inspirational to chat. As always. The Odyssey from and back to the spawning grounds truly is a journey of attrition. After starting life with 900 or so siblings, our Sokai probably has only one left. Upon hearing this fact, there are more than a few looks of awe among the students as they roll up their pant legs and get ready for their first aquatic study of the year. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I've always yeah. liked dippers, so I, I don't know why they're quite widespread internationally. Like there huh. are various species of them, but they're not in Eastern North America. So I'm gypped in my <laughs> dipper explorations, which is too bad. But yeah, there are other great things about my home watershed. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really cool.